Hi everyone, welcome to the Redactive Podcast. My name is Scott Wright. I'm a musician, audio editor, creator and sound designer. This podcast is simply conversations with fellow artists, musicians, creators, anyone else I I find interesting and I hope you get something out of it. This first episode is a conversation I had with one of my oldest friends, Paul Wiltshire, someone who's been quite successful within the music industry, both as a musician and on the other side of things in production and um, music business. We caught up when he was recently in the country and I think this is probably a good one to start on. So without further ado, let's get into it. And this episode is Paul Wiltshire. Welcome, Paul Wiltshire. You're my first. You're popping my cherry. Man, I'm, I, I didn't think it would start like this. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe we could try just, that again. Just, <laughs> just go, just go easy on me. <laughs> I like Very that intro. Yeah. It was excellent. Yeah, but I can only use it once. <laughs> um, Paul Wiltshire, um, perhaps you could start by telling us about you. Just start wherever you want. And right. What so, you do. Yeah, so I'm a musician. I think that's that's kind of in simple terms. I was a, a, first a keyboard player, or even earlier than that, a trumpet player. And then I, I found a, a real love for synthesis and sounds and, and playing, playing in bands. And uh, that led to songwriting and eventually record production and engineering. And I guess now you'd call me a t- music tech entrepreneur tell us about that song trader so yeah we uh, i founded uh, the company songtrader.com in uh well it was almost five years ago now 2014 no it was four years ago and it you know it was a it was a, a passion to solve a number of problems that exist in the music business that that start with uh, access for musicians and songwriters to get access to licensing and you know t- major tv shows films advertising we wanted to create a, a platform where any musician could participate and anyone in the industry or anyone in the media industry who needed music could could license uh, something efficiently from that audience or that from from music creators and so we had to solve a few problems one of them was there's a lot of fragmentation with rights there's a lot of rights owners in terms of one song sometimes there's three songwriters yeah like three songwriters four songwriters a label a publisher yeah so we wanted to make it compatible with any with any uh, rights configuration so we so we built it as a content management system a rights management system a marketplace for rights licensing for all verticals, whether it be advertising, gaming, film, TV, all, all kinds of media. And now we do distribution. So uh, you can uh, you know, use SongTrader to get onto Spotify, uh, Apple and Google. That's and new? Amazon. You've just started? Yeah, we that? just launched that in June this year. Yep. And uh, it's, it's great. It's been going really well. And we're technology for musicians. We, we, we want to build the box that uh, allows them to do everything they need in mm. one place. What gave you the idea? Like, is was there something around? I mean, the, not not really. No. So I, the idea, well, the idea came about from being a songwriter and producer, and and having publishers. Now, I must have written five hundred tracks in ten years, from between say ninety six and two thousand six, and of those five hundred tracks, probably only fifteen percent of them were ever commercialized. So, 
it didn't mean the others were necessarily bad. It's just that there was no way of getting them out there. So most of the music that I ever wrote or, or produced was because a record company paid me to. Yeah. And and I wanted a platform, well, how else can I get my music out there? So it came from that. Then we had a label and publishing company and ourselves in uh, 2007, 8, 9, and the same frustration was there. Like, how do we how do we get a track onto an American TV show? I had, I would have to get on a plane and fly to America and hope that I can. Uh, it's foot in the door type selling. Yeah, it was it was just too hard. That can't be right. Mm-hmm. And I add to that, there were many times that there was opportunities that my publisher didn't even tell me about. So, you know, maybe there's a. a $1,000 for a track in a Why film. Why do you think that was? Well, just not enough money to make the worth their time yep. to paper it. Yep. So you know, we thought there's there's definitely a, a solution to that. The solution for one, making it easier for the buyer to actually access music and two, giving access to, to the huge growing population of mm. mus- musicians in the world to give them access. Yeah. Yeah, it's such a cool idea. Like when you first told me about it, you described it like eBay for... Music. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. So shit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that that was the original way we used to describe it. We, yeah. We uh um we kind of like the idea of you know the of kind of ten year goal is to be the Amazon for music rights mm. because we built it to be um compatible with everyone. So you know we'd yeah. love to see the whole industry using it at some point in the future. I just like the fact that any creator, like myself for example, can write something and put it up. Yeah. And have a chance of getting it on a TV show or a movie, or which I need to do. I should do that. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, funny. it's funny. I haven't put up all my stuff. No. It's, it's just sometimes you haven't got time. I mean, I, I, I'm guilty of that myself. Yeah. We had a great recent story. Uh, I can't remember the name of the country. It was a little South American country, population of about half a million. And um, this young artist uh, that uploaded his songs, you know, and within three months he had, two or three licenses with major TV shows, including Rihanna's makeup brand. And, um, you know, and I think he made about 12,000 in the, within three or four months. And it, for, for him, it was life changing. Mm. And just, to, it's so wonderful to be able to, you know, yep. see, see stories like that. And, and, uh, I can't remember the name of the artist. I should, I should, it's on our, it's on our blog. We did a special story on it cause it was kind of unique and, um, but we're seeing more and more of that kind of success come out from very you know left field uh, and like places. Pre- previously, yeah. he he would have not had an opportunity, or less of an opportunity to yeah. get his stuff out there. Yeah, it's, it's cool. Be tough. Yeah, yeah. the industry yeah. is tough. Right? The, the music industry always has been. Yeah, probably more so now. Well, well, so you know, the, yes and no. Um, there is a lot more access. 20 years ago, there was no way of getting your music out there by yourself that was easy or simple. Mm. Um, it wasn't actually easy to also create music cheaply. You know, we can we can make a record on our laptop now. I know. 20 years ago, yeah, you know, I mean, we, had, we had to have... you got to get into a studio. Yeah. Well, you had to have studio time. 20 years ago, you had to have yep. all the right equipment to be able to get it to a yep. commercial sounding product and... You know now there's so much more ability, so so the barriers of entry are, are really low. So there's uh, there must be a thousand times more artists today who have the ability to commercialize their product. Which you know, if the entry point for commercialization is getting it onto Spotify, then 
whereas we've got a significant amount more opportunity. So there's a lot more supply, but their demand is also growing as well. So mm. the, the more it's a lot easier for people to consume Spotify and Apple, and those numbers are growing every year. And there's more and more countries that are that are legitimately consuming music after what was a fairly tough time of piracy and you know the transition from physical to digital. And I think we're still getting there. I don't think streaming's great yet for the artist. So monetary yeah. wise, so it it it's kind. Of, so I, I think about this a lot and it's I don't know if it it's certainly not a bad thing because the abs- things like Spotify, no. The absence of it would mean nothing. Because what would the artist do without it? I mean, what would we go back we'd have to go, go back, back to physical product. Well, go back to physical product, go back to radio. And it's very hard to get onto radio. Yeah. You're not there's no access without no. paying radio pluggers and it, I think it, in Australia it's particularly hard to get onto Nova or Fox. I don't know how you do it. You'd know better than I, but... Well, I mean, you know, 10 years ago it was is hard. It, I think is it it's who hard. you know? Well... Is it your management? Is it... Well, it's who you are, I think. Um, so, you know, if you're, if you're Sony or you're Universal and, it, and it's you're, you're putting a lot of money behind the push, mm. there's probably... A, you've definitely got a lot more um, leverage to, to get a radio station yeah. to support it. So I, I actually think streaming is great because... Well, like we said uh, just before, have, I do it. That's what I listen to. Yeah, you know, that's how I listen to my music. It's great now. for the it's great for the consumer. The consumer gets choice. The artist, every artist gets to be on it. Mm. And yes, the money is low, but I, Spotify, by example, pays, I think, approximately eighty five percent of its revenue to rights holders. So it's not so much that. It's the model that hasn't quite reached scale yet. And I think that'll change. I mean, without getting, getting political, yeah. the new new thing that Trump's just signed off on. Uh, so that, that, that ensures uh, the, yeah, the, the um, Music Modernization Act. Mm. Um, what it does is ensures that, well, after some time and, and, and implementation, it, it assures that copyright or particular copyright owners aren't left out because a lot of the time streaming platforms don't know exactly who owns all of the music that they're streaming yeah and so there are missing mm. there are missing pieces and this uh part of what this uh new act does is is takes care of some of that it's fixing up some holes it's good yeah yep. yeah but it, it also takes care of some um some new revenue streams for producers yep. that weren't there yeah and some other you know, actors in the mm. in the in the uh, ecosystem that, that weren't there before. What's next for me? Yeah, or for the industry? Both. Uh, well, for for Song Trader, we're um, we can't say a whole lot about what we're coming up with, but we do have some really exciting things coming up next year. Uh, we're launching an app in the new year. Uh, it'll be our first mobile app, and we're going to be bringing in some very cool functionality that allows artists to do a whole lot more so we don't have to log on to our desktops laptops to yeah yeah so I mean, the- I mean you could do it on your mobile now but you know it, it it's a it's an app yeah you know, experience so it'll yeah. be it'll be a lot more well so it's be easier to, to, to do you outsource that or do you have a a so team. We, we have a mobile team yep. um we have uh so we have kind of three development teams we have our core development team we have we have a blockchain development team and we have a, a mobile development team so 
got uh, some exciting developments in the blockchain area, mm. which uh, I can't talk too much about at the moment because no. we're we're uh, we're making uh, some announcements about that next year. But there's some exciting. Is, is developments. this breaking news? It, it's not. I mean, it's probably actually. I've probably already said, Mate, said more than I have. Let's be honest. Like by the time I get this ready and out. You'll have it out. <laughs> I, don't, well, I don't know how long you're going to take to edit. I don't it, know. So. Well, see, the idea was not to edit it. Okay. Because I do that for other people. Okay. And I'm too lazy. I don't want to do it for myself. So. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, I'm doing podcasts and audio books all over the place, and yeah, um, it's laborious. Yeah, especially if it's going to be twenty or thirty minutes long. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is going to be two hours, mate. You're right. Two hours. Settle in. Jesus. <laughs> All right, I better get let's, relaxed. Let's go back. I want to talk about Where's Ballarat. The yeah, <laughs> you've got it right there. Um, I want to take it back to Ballarat because right, okay. the idea of the, this podcast series was Ballarat people who have sort of made it, okay, in some respects, nationally or internationally, or okay, have have some sort of name, okay. So um, you're obviously I don't have up there, mate. You're top of the list. So I want to talk about. The st- you start in Ballarat. Okay. So that's going back a while. I have to test the brain cells, some of which I have lost along the years. So I guess the first real memory I have of music and Ballarat is at school. And I met, well, my closest friend at Ballarat High School is Jamie King. You don't make me cry, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need you. Know, Take it easy. He's, uh, you know, and... Uh, him and I had a mutual love for hard rock and, you know, Van Halen and, and, uh, no, oh, good times. Yeah, ACDC. So we were just, you know, we were just loved rock. And I had just discovered the Juno 106 and I got one, from, you know, I, I hounded my parents for, I think, a year. But you still had that for, you kept that. I kept it for a long time. It was, it was kind of, I think I, I think I sold it like in the nineties or some point. No, in, no. I think I sold it in the nineties. I bought one back. Like, which one on. did you have when we shared the house in Easy Street? That was the original one. I thought so. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was the original one. Yeah. Um, so the Juno. So I, I, I really worked my parents for for a good year, and it was an expensive investment for them. And we, we, we were a very blue collar family, and uh, I remember going to Brashes in Melbourne. And they're on special nine ninety nine, and uh, the day came. It was bought for Christmas, and I and I just fell in love. That that kind of it was the combination of music and sound. It was the the ability to manipulate. It's so easy to program sounds. On Is that when you June. decided you wanted to work at Brushes? No, that came later. I mean, it was out of necessity. And then so Jamie and I started you know messing around in the studio, and uh, we met. Who was it? Who was our first? I think it was Dane, our first drummer. Was it Dane Lawless or was it Brent McKay? I thought. I think it was Dane. Yeah, okay. I think it was. Did you play with Brett? Did Brett play? Yeah, Brett McKay was in. I've seen, I've seen photos of the yellow drum kit. Was that. I think. I can't remember whether Brett was. But was it Brett? There was Sparky, Glenn Spark, um, and Jamie, and, and David Hopwood. And that was the, that was the first ben? band. And Ben Northey was also in the uh, in Easy Prey playing sax when it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> when was that? It's <laughs> a long time ago. It was in the eighties. Um, okay, it was a brief time there. Yeah. It was cool. Uh, ben went on to play with Relax and Max, and he 
He, his sax playing is extraordinary. Yeah, like he, he slayed it. Yeah, I love that band. Yeah, the, uh, the best uh, sax player I've heard in um, certainly in Australia back then. But anyway, so the so the first memory was really just that those you know, early form formational year you know, year with Jamie exploring sound. You know, I I should go back a bit. Ben and I also used to do these kind of silly little radio kind of. We used to record our own kind of radio show is, just for fun on tape. So and, this podcasting shit's pretty... It's, that was in the 83 and we, it would only be for our, our ears only. So who's got those tapes? I still got them. Mm-hmm. I still got them. Yep. It's good to have things on people. Um, exactly. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I know this better than most. <laughs> um, ben and I actually had... There was a, a public radio station here back then. Triple B. Three Triple B. Was it, we did... Mm. We actually did a, an hour show and I think we... I think we messed it up so bad we were never invited back again. But you had fun. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. Yeah, we thought we were. But that, that were the early days. Like, and Ben and I used to do these recordings where he, we had the drum kit and the Juno. We'd do a track where it was, I would play the Juno, he would play the drum kit. We'd record it with a, you know, like a tape deck, just a standard old you know, cassette mm. recorder. Yep. And then we'd play the cassette recorder into another cassette recorder and play another kind of layer of synth or, or an, another instrument. Like he would play sax or flute or Early something. Early multi-tracking. That's how we multi-track. So the start of any recording by the time we finished started with... Oh, the tape saturation. It'd be nuts on it. <laughs> yeah. So it was... Uh, I've still got all those recordings and there's some funny stuff in there. So that, so that was really the, the start. It was Ben and I discovering music yep. together. And and uh, you know, he's such an incredible musician. I think... He's he was it was a great inspiration for me. He was always he always felt like he was a little more advanced in the uh, in terms of um, you know like just musicianship, and I, I was more sort of focused on the on the sound. And uh, so then I think it was Easy Prey or was it Child's Play that was first? I think Easy Prey Easy came Prey, first. Easy Prey was first. Yeah. So we, I think our first gig was at high school. It was maybe a disco, like one of the. Mm-hmm high school disco i can't remember yeah. what it's called and uh, then we started doing the old you know engagement i think we got some pub gigs all underage pub gigs i think we so. all used to do yeah. those yeah i don't know I, I can't remember exactly um but i'm not sure when easy prey ended and child's well i met you child's play days Right, so that came when out. I was playing so that was brett mckay wasn't it no that was dane that was dane yep so at some point brett came in can't remember. I think Brett might have been early. I maybe was before early. Dane. Okay. okay. Or briefly. But right. I okay. Don't know. Yeah. You Bad probably you, you sacked Dane, did you? And then got Brett in, and then sacked Brett and got Dane back. Um, <laughs> I, I don't remember firing anyone. Okay. <laughs> um, Not back uh, then. No. Yeah. <laughs> um. So what happened after that? So then, we, you know, then we. Oh, that's right. I met uh, Peter Goller. In uh, so I got a job at Brashes. That was my first job outside of high school. And Peter came in one day, and you know we met briefly, and he said, "Let's do a duo together." And that duo was great. Pete's voice, man, it was great. John Farnham. So I had to program a bunch of tracks. So that was the mm. that was the deal. It was, and then it was an M one, so everything had to be programmed on a Korg M one. Yep. So I programmed like thirty tracks or something. We started doing gigs at the Union Hotel. Yeah. Yep. So I think. You know, oh, good nights. Peter and I, you know, did a bunch of gigs, and then Glenn Crompton joined that that tr- and became a trio. Yep. 
They were called After Dark. Right. Very original. And we're talking Club Crescent days now. Now we're in Club Crescent. Yeah. And uh, then... You would have been 21 20, yeah, 20, 21. And then we, and then, you know, a move to Melbourne was, seemed inevitable. And, and, uh, you know, Ben Northey had already moved down to Melbourne. So uh, I decided to follow and, you know, we set up, set up, uh, I, I found a play, a share, you know, combination with a friend who also from Ballarat, Heath, he used to be a hairdresser. I can't remember his last name was Heath. I, and, I, I, I remember um, Cammy's last name. Cammy Lyons. Lyons. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I can't for the life of me remember Heath's last yeah. name. Yeah. Yeah. So we had the, so I had a, a, a bedroom in that house and that's, uh, it was soon after that uh, all the, we really started thinking about original music, Jamie, and you used to come down. And- well, we were, we were studying sound engineering, and well, I, I remember approaching you because you were working in Brushes, Melbourne. That's right. Then, yep. and I came in and said, "Man, I can't do the train, the train rides, to every, and from, yeah, every um, day. Yeah, have you got a, a room I could?" Um, so we. So you said, "Yeah, I've got a room, but it's my room." So there was the three of us. The three, sleep sometimes four, because your mate Brent also stayed a couple of times. I didn't know how that works. It was a tiny room. Do you go sleep on the floor? I don't even. How did that work? So you had two couches. Two couches in the one room. So me and Jamie got a couch each. Yeah. And you had the big double bed to yourself, which I thought was quite, you know, it's a bit selfish. A bit selfish. Yeah. I mean, we could have top and tailed. <laughs> My feet don't stink that much. And they were they were good times. They were good times. But then that sort of took off for you. Soon after, so what happened next? Then we so we, then there was the band Crunch Twenty Six. Yep, and uh, and great band like some of those originals, the stuff that Steve wrote. There's some really Steve good songs Waitman. There. Yeah, man, they were great songs. Yeah. Yeah. And and you got in with Sony. You sort of come along after that though, didn't you? You joined. Yeah. Jamie joined, and then got you. You came along after yeah, so Jamie had been in the I band. Mean, I don't think there was an actual any like formal relationship with Sony. I don't think anything actually um, was ever cemented. No. I think it was some interest. There was interest. There was um, let's rehearse more. Yeah. Get, um, and we'll get your gigs. I remember having a great connection again with Jamie and yep. um, Wayne Kilborn. Yes. I loved playing with those two guys. Mm, like, just a great rhythm section. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's just because it was really, you know, it yeah. was uh, just that those two used to lock in they so, did. so yeah. perfectly. And it was yeah. just, you know, great playing to a rhythm section. Yeah. But, but, um, and, and especially because we had programmed stuff that uh, that Wayne would have to be locked, you know, absolutely mm. locked. And he was very good yeah, at that. He was very good. Yeah. 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 So then, I mean, the band kind of, you know, fell apart. I think it was just, After. yeah, it was just the stretch of time that it took. You know, everyone kept hearing back from Sony, just keep yeah. going, keep rehearsing. Yeah. And I think, you know, I understand it is that they wanted Mark Scott, the singer. They didn't want the band. That was my understanding. They wanted his voice. They wanted to put their own guys in, session guys, whatever, I don't know. Uh, Mark was a great singer. He, yeah. he, he's a. I haven't seen him for a long time. He's a. He's a good mate. But oh, he was supposed um, to come up a couple but, of weeks ago. Right. There was there was a lot of different people involved around that band. That so really the true the truth may have been that you know actually Sony had very little to do 
with it? Or, no, quite know, possibly. Have, and, and there's yeah. probably a hundred bands that they all had a an eye on. Those were the days when a record company made purely subjective decisions about mm. about who they signed. It yep. wasn't about their audience. It wasn't about you know. It was really you know. Do we think this guy or this band will sell mm. or this girl? Yeah. But now that whole industry shifted to data. So they don't look at they just look at the sales. It's, it's the well it's they look at what are the existing streaming numbers? How yep. how often they tour? What are their social numbers like? Are, is there a decent Facebook following? Mm. What's their YouTube channel like? How many how many streams? How many subscribers? Yeah. That's the new industry. They look at that before they look at how marketable the appearance uh, they they are looking to build brands. Yeah. So if the brand already has an audience, it's a lot easier, a lot cheaper to mm. build on that audience. And it's going to become more and more about that. So yep. for any young musician or any young band that uh, that they're trying to get the interest in the eye of uh, of record labels or the music industry or management or anyone uh, at an executive level in the industry, you have to build build all of those mm. lanes. You know, get your music out. Don't hold back. Get it out on a on a platform. Uh, you know, get it distributed. Get it uh, and work your social media, even if it doesn't feel natural. Start building an audience. Yeah, yeah. Find a, find a way to make it work that suits your, that's true to who you are. Like if you know every, every band, every musician has a good story. Like there, there's always something that uh, is is uniquely them. Yeah. And if they can be true to that, then it becomes a lot easier to share that. If they're contriving something. It becomes very difficult to maintain. It's transparent. You can see yeah. that. Yeah. Obvious. Yeah. 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 Um, so, getting back to it, what came after that? Being in an original band is, and having a part-time job at Brashes doesn't exactly equal a secure lifestyle. No. So we're I, all living pretty. Yeah. We were, I mean, you know, four of us. Hand to mouth. Three of us in a room. Yeah. <laughs> single yeah. bedrooms. Is it? It's not it's not paradise. No. Um, so we, so I and I I really had had enough of brashes. I mean that was that was uh, that was tough um, having to go into the city. You know, it was you know, Melbourne brashes. Then it was it was it was it was tough having to go in every day and, and then trying to balance out some sort of you know music. And I I loved programming music, so I spent as much of my time just kind of programming tracks that they weren't for anything. I just used to like creating music. And uh, and I tried to focus on getting into some cover, you know, going back to what we did with uh, with Peter Goller in, the, in those days and finding a, a trio. So I actually teamed up with Mark Scott out of Crunch Twenty Six, and we put together a trio, and we did we did a I, good year or two. I of, did not know this. Right? Yeah. No, we had a we had a trio. This is what I came back here and yeah, finished school and came yeah, back here. Yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, Mark and I worked together for a couple of years, and yeah. we we did. And we did dozens of, you know, a couple of gigs a week. Yep. Um, weddings, you know, yep. uh, pubs, football clubs, you name it. There was usually, yep. two, usually two or three a week. And I, I think eventually that um, we moved on from that and I joined another trio, did that for, uh, for with a couple of other, um, with uh, Greg Omara and, and Leanne, who's also Omara now. Um they were great. It was more disco, kind of more pop, uh, and then I found a, uh, a 
a gig with Andrew Hoskins and Coop Deville. That was like ninety five. Yep, and that was more. It was a bit more pro level. Like in, that's probably when things really started to. Well, that's when I got started to be able to live off music. Yeah, it was you know instead of scrapping. Yeah. Um, and and we did five gigs a week, and yep. it was it was a much easier gig. Right, we, mm. there was no setup. They yep. had road crew. You turn up and play. Yeah. And you know you do your two sets of forty five and go home. Yep. The hours were pretty ugly. We you know some gigs started at twelve thirty one o'clock in the morning, but you know I was twenty five years old. Yeah, so you it was, could do it. It was all good. And and the, I did that for a couple of years, five gigs a week. That kind of burns you out after a while. Mm-hmm. And I used to pro, I used to often take my gear home and keep programming. I was always programming music and try, trying to find a sound. And still not really worrying about what was commercial or anything like that. Just really trying to build sound uh, and build build tracks. And I was often uh, getting hired to do like backing tracks, covers. So someone would say, oh, "I need a you know this. I need to perform with this." I'd, and I always just went went over over the call to try and get it exact. So even if it took yeah. me three days. It was get that, like, find that exact sound. Yeah, because I, I like the challenge of it. So yeah. I thought, and and I was learning how to produce as a yeah. result of it. I was like copying beats. I was like, oh, that's what they do. And it's like, yeah. it was all the structure. I was just oh, man, kind of learning yeah. as you go. And even though I was wasn't being paid much to do it, I came out of it really knowing form and and learning a lot of production that's, skills. That's the thing about cover covers musicians too. I mean, they that's they come out of it. I think. Knowing a lot more. Well, it's like studying the music every yeah. night, aren't you? Studying yeah. what other people, what other successful musicians have done. Yeah. Um, so I, so in 1996, I, I took a, a risk, and it was let's. I'm just going to be a producer, and a and songwriter, and I'm going to give it a shot. I'm going to go all in. Yep. And I approached some a couple of singing schools, and you know I had a few different friends uh, that were in advertising i did a couple of little radio ads and and the singing school was really uh, really successful for me it was that it was a jam singing school back then it was and uh, you know they're still around today i think they've got lots of they've always had lots of students and i used to get a lot of them coming to do their either their original music or their backing tracks and mm. that and that really allowed me to sort of start building a to just produce music all day yep and so I literally would do, you know, someone would come in, I'd spend eight hours with them, and they'd walk out with a finished track. Yeah. So I got really fast at it as well. So it was. And you knew by then, like, I could imagine, you, you, I want to do this song, for example. Someone comes to you and say, I want to do this song. But the song was recorded by actual. So it would be a mix. Musicians, right? and you've got to find that horn sound, for example. Yeah. That's tough. It is tough. Yeah. So, so well, it'd be, you don't want it to sound karaoke. It would be a combination <laughs> That's of the things. Trick. Well, so I, nece- I wouldn't necessarily work with that person during the day because that would just me you know, send me the track you want me to, to copy and I'll create it. Oh, you don't want anyone over your shoulder either. But I did do a lot of people that just had original music and that came in all forms from right from the yep. from just a person who has literally no music knowledge just singing a melody yep. with no chordal harmonic yep. uh, structure at all mm. to someone who, say, had, it was an acoustic guitar player or, or had done a previous demo, but a simple demo, and they yep. wanted something more professional sound. Yep. So I had so that was a challenge too because you you mm. get some very very strange interpret like some sometimes when pe- someone is 
reasonably new to music and they're, they're doing singing lessons, but they have no musical theory knowledge or, and they don't play an instrument. Mm. They uh, ha- ha- come up with interesting melodies or not so interesting melodies that need to be constructed into something that, that works. Yeah. So but sometimes those people with no clue. They also stumble on some. It's like, some, wow, that's sort of cool. Yeah. Like, yeah, so it's it's technically probably not right. So it allowed me to be really creative on how I interpret those. Like I can interpret it with with a whole minor approach or a, a relative major approach, or I could it, mm. it could really take it down. So it, so it allowed me to be really creative, and and that really started exercising the skill of production and uh, and being able to interpret song and interpret music. So it, it really worked. It grew. It honed my arrangement skills. Yep. It honed my sound skills and sound choice. And I was always like farming sounds. And you know, these was long before the days where you could just download, you know, twenty gigabyte of sound libraries in a in a flash and be set up in a moment. This was in the days where you know you had sample CDs and you got to go out and buy them. And yep. it was it was you know, yeah. and a whole heap more sound design. Yeah, it was it was tougher. Yeah. So that you know that kept that was really what I did through till um through to one day a Mark Mark Holden walked through my door. He said I I've heard some of your stuff and So I, that was it. That was the moment, wasn't it? It was Mark Holden. Mark Holden was the ch- changing point because he had a 14-year-old Vanessa Amorossi yeah. that he was managing. Yeah. And uh, I met Vanessa and I heard her voice and I went holy oh, shit. shit. <laughs> yeah, like this girl's yeah. incredible set of pipes. Yeah, and incredible like ability to ad lib and mm. incredible control especially at that age i've got some recordings from her from that from 14 or 15 which ended up still making the record that didn't come out until she was closer to 17 or 18 yeah yeah, yeah. it was and because it was mark and you know mark was mark knew, knew songwriting and i started writing song he's a great songwriter he just understands it so well and i started writing songs for with him for vanessa's future album and they were still at this stage um shopping they didn't have a deal so it was all on spec yep and i just decided to really give my all like even Mm. though i wasn't being paid i spent at least a year working with mark on vanessa's demos and it was all on spec and i I just felt like she was worth you you sort of knew yeah yeah, and i i i I believed in mark and uh and his uh, management partner Jack Strom, they were you know good people, and I thought, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, yep. I'm going to give my all for this. And eventually, you know, it was 1999, I think, somewhere around there, that the well, they probably did a deal slightly earlier than that in '98 with a company called a small company, Transistor Music, and the album came out, and uh, you know it was a huge success, and and then things just start to snowball after that. Yeah. It only takes that one. Takes one. And yep. I was very focused on just really want one you know, I, I need one break, one yeah. hit, one yep. and and it it eventually it eventually came. Yep. It came in the form of an album. I didn't have the the first single. Um but I had I think I had the third single, but it uh but the album So you had the song the songwriting credits on I had four songs on the and production the album. credit. I, so I, I recorded I had it I produced well, I produced all, most of the vocals on the record and I produced one song entirely, but um, a lot of it was like I, I was producing the the kind of demos and uh, the um, 
recording the vocals and then they had a german um producer who was finishing off some of the tracks so yeah yeah it was uh it was and he was good yeah he was really good yeah and then it sort of snowballed yeah yeah so it's people started to come to you exactly and and that you know that so we had a good run from um from 1999 it got a little slow around 2002 and i started looking at america because i suppose i suppose i shouldn't skip over the uh, I got. Uh, I met Sandy Robinson, who was a U.S. Um, based producer manager. Yep. And you know, in 2000, we signed an artist called Tali. Didn't really happen. It was a. You know, I, I was working with a, a guy called Shane Monopoly and two other guys, Gavin Wood and Richard Renato. Yep. And we signed a, a girl called Tali from the Sunshine Coast. I think she's still around. So Nat Dunn, I think I've, I've seen her recently. She's dropped the Tali. I think, yeah, she yep. still goes by Nat Dunn or Natalie Dunn now. I saw her recently yep. at the Apple Awards. And she's she's a great singer. And we we signed her to Liberation, which is Kadinsky's label. And it's part of the, kind of part of the Mushroom Group. Yep. And we had a, we had a good sing, first single. It was, it was top 30. And the second single didn't really go so well. And I, I think the, the the label lost faith that they could make the product work. But out of that, I met uh, Sandy Robinson, who was a um, one of the top US producer managers in the in and certainly one of the most notable in the world at the time. Yep. And uh, he wanted me to come over and work with the production company, The Matrix, over there. Nothing to do with the film. They're they're uh, they're a music production crew that uh, and they. They did all the big hits for Avril Lavigne. They worked with Britney. They uh, uh, worked with you know, Korn, heap, heaps of them. So I worked, so I worked with the. I went over to the US for, and that was my first kind of window into the US market. And I spent two months working with them. And I didn't feel like, I felt like it was too much happening for me in Australia. So I, I wasn't ready to sort of move over there. I sort of, I was kind of excited about what we were doing with, um, you know, with the record label side of things and there was enough happening back in Australia that I wanted to sort of stay there. It wasn't possibly, maybe not the best decision, but anyway, I went back to Australia and ended up, um, you know, the Tali thing wasn't really a success and uh, we, you know, I did a few other records, but I eventually just got the bug to go back to the US. And mm. so in 2003, I set up uh, a permanent studio there. We got an apartment and uh you know, victoria and i my wife uh, and we, we weren't married then but uh, used to travel back and forth and she's also a songwriter and 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 uh also was kind of co-producer on many things too so yeah um but she, we we traveled two months there two months back we yep. did that for years and in uh, we did a song called my beautiful woman we demoed it in australia with uh gary pinto who's a great great singer and we pitched Sandy, our manager, became our manager, and he pitched to the Backstreet Boys, and um, they they loved it, and so we got the, the gig to record that on their Never Gone album, and so that was that was a real you know game changer for us. Just it was, it was another level. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and you know it's you know it's confronting. You know, we're walking into a studio to to direct. A super group like that because they're looking for direction from you. It's like, well, how how do you want us to sing this? Yeah, and so it, it's a challenge to you know to get overcome those insecurities. Like, you know, shit, I got to tell Nick Carter how to sing now, 
and uh but it was okay it was, it was great we you know we spent an amazing amount of time on that record and uh the the album took a long time to come out so it was kind of frustrating waiting for it to come out and but then you know became so busy in australia after that we'd had you know a string of stuff with like australian idol like guy sebastian shannon noel uh, anthony callier uh we did uh did all the human nature motown records yep. that was i think that was the one in aria for highest that was the first album. aria uh that was i mean it was it was really human nature's aria but it was uh, for highest selling album yeah yeah yep. and uh that that was in what 2005 i think it spent nine or ten weeks mm. at number one so it was a good yeah. it was a good journey i used all u.s america uh, u.s musicians for that too we right you know okay. I, so they wanted to do a motown kind of tribute so you got the old cats i got some great musicians like um paul bushnell on bass uh he's you know he tours with katie lang and and i like he's tours with so many different u.s artists he's one of the Greco Barato on guitar, on guitar. He's like plays with Shakira and a bunch of uh, other really well known, um, you know, artists internationally. And uh, uh, Brian McLeod on drums, uh, another legend and legendary keyboard player. I'm trying to remember his name. Uh, Jim Cox, and uh, there was just great, and they were so intuitive. Like this. You just hit record and they just, they do just it. get it. Like, what one take? Smash. Oh, no, I do a few takes like because you'd always want some choices, right? You're not going to get everything perfect in the race. So, but yeah, you could you could more or less do three or four takes with those sort of guys and have it. You'd have it. Yeah. You just have to you know yeah do the edit afterwards, and we recorded the Human Nature Boys in Sydney, and uh, I mean those guys are so um, professional, like really really tuned in terms of how they approach things yep. and uh, very dedicated to what they do. You know, they're, they're, and, and they've had tremendous success in Las Vegas over the last five years. They moved over there, got a show over there. With, uh, they really work hard. Not too far from you? Not too far. Relatively Five-hour drive. Five-hour drive, is it? Yeah. yeah it's okay. not one I make too often, but no. we've done it a few times. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so then we, I guess we moved on. We We from from that period we you know we started signing our own artists and uh you know we built up a little management um it was a boutique management production label publishing business uh in 2007 and uh it was a tough time for the music industry that was the time where you know streaming hadn't really begun itunes was well and truly in you know in the mix but the industry was down. Piracy, the piracy was rampant, and mm. but the industry in terms of is re- that were we revenue, talking Napster sort of era? Uh, no, it's, this is like oh seven. No, this is what well and truly after Napster, but this was the industry was half its value. Like it, it gone from a forty billion dollar industry to a fifteen. Uh, maybe my numbers are out, but yes, you know, it, it had dropped yep. significantly. It would, it had halved. Yeah, and it's only in the last three years it started to recover. Mm. So that whole period, it was, it was the wrong time, I think, for us to to be doing a, an independent pop uh, pop uh, label in Australia, and it was tough. Like we had hard, a, hard gig at the best of times, oh, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, it was a really challenging time to do it, yeah. and in you know, hindsight, then maybe we absolutely could have done things a lot a lot better. But um, we, you know, we had uh, we had a 
good success was Sam Clark, who was off Neighbours. Yep. And he had a uh, good stable, I thought. Yeah, there was some, there was some great the, artists. The girls, the girl group. Trinity. Trinity, yep. Yeah, I mean, we got them a tour. Uh, they toured with uh, Jason Derulo. They mm-hmm. did a world tour. They uh, yep. performed across Europe and, and the US. Yep. Uh, you know, it's it's challenging trying to manage multiple acts. It's hard enough doing one. Yeah. And I think we spread, you know, we did spread ourselves too thin. Yep. And, you know, I, I think we had, there was a great band we looked after called Goodbye Motel. Yes. I've still got the, yep. that album needs to, um, should be released. It, it was an amazing album. Those guys are really. That good. wasn't released. I don't, th- no, I think it was released, but just locally or something. Yeah. But I'm sure I've yeah, it's just, heard it. I think we got it out eventually, but it was just, you know, we, Luckily, we uh, we we um, eventually found uh, someone who wanted to buy the company, and they and they bought they bought. Uh, but it was it was an interesting time. You know, yeah, it was it was a a lot of lessons learned, a lot of growing growing up. Well, it's probably helped you now. Absolutely, like it. It's not easy growing a business, and it's certainly not easy managing people and and. Uh, you know, building a technology business, you have to build it fast. You you can't because someone else will do someone it. Someone else will do it, and you've got to do it better than anyone yeah. else if you're going to succeed. So, it's 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 a time for rapid growth, and we're definitely in that uh, phase at the moment. Uh, we're um, we're moving very quickly through nineteen and twenty. We've got very aggressive expansion plans, and and uh, we we see the music industry entering a very interesting phase. Like it's, it's a, it's a time of independence. There's more and more independent success. And that's great. That's like great. You said at no, the start of it, like it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. It, it's, it is a time for, um, I think more people have the chance to. Absolutely. Like absolutely. To get somewhere. You're, you're always going to have your super pop. Yeah. And you know, super, yeah. super bands and brands, but, it is a it is a, a really really opportune time yep. for for the music industry. Yeah, and I don't I think it'll look quite different in ten years than it does today. Yep, it'll, uh, it, it, the, this just the virtual reality and what that'll mean for the music industry is it'll be it'll be significant. I mean, it's hard to fathom for, the, from the a, breadth of what virtual reality will, from will bring. A production point of view, and what we'll be able to do in a home studio with mm-hmm. VR is is fucking cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm really excited. Yeah. Um, but, but I've got gear acquisition syndrome gas. So, you know, I'm always looking for the new I've had that. You know, the new gadget yeah. to, to get the new I device. For, I suffer for that from twenty for twenty years. I'm just least. just glad I'm not into um analog synths because that would uh I used to be my break my addiction bank. was outboard gear. I used to love just a vintage outboard. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I love the MIDI controllers, as you can probably tell. Yes, we do have a few. I think, mate, that's probably about it. I've got a couple of questions. Okay. What would you do if you didn't do music? Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Uh, I would do tech. I love technology. Yep. Yeah, I would. I would definitely. Uh, um, I, I, I would. F- there, there are so many ideas. I mean, you know, have ten ideas a week. Nine of them are rubbish. Uh, one of them's probably good, right? But, yeah. But there is there is so much opportunity in technology now. Yeah. There is so many. And it's exponential. So many ways. Of, so many problems to solve. Mm. So many. So many ways to improve 
processes. And the journey that I've been on has really opened up my mind to data, um, to you know, user, user journeys and, and all kinds of um, experiences that, so I, I would definitely, uh, I, I, would, I always like the combination of technology on, in it, on its own uh, without a passion yep. is, you know, maybe a little, could be a little soulless, but music is my passion. So I'm able to, and, and I've always well, It's loved, great that you can combine. Yeah. I've know. always loved technology. It's really my use of technology in, in my music career that really was key. It was how I I'd, think yeah, you always have. Like I remember um, when you were working in Brashes, Melbourne, and we were put, putting together, say, a friend's video and you'd bring yeah. home the gear and, and we'd just pour over it. Yeah. all night wouldn't we yeah. just yeah. working on tech yeah just gadgets yeah, I, yeah i've always loved it so yeah. i think that when you can combine a couple of passions mm. then uh, you found a sweet spot yeah next question local influence and and international influence okay local being australia a person that's influenced you mm-hmm. well no locally like Let's say Ballarat. Well, if we're going to, to go keep Ballarat, the theme, if we're going to go Ballarat, that my biggest influence would be David Hirschfelder. Yep. Um, and I had the pleasure of uh, having him round to dinner recently at our house in Los Angeles. Yeah. And he's he's I hadn't met I'd met him once when I was eighteen in his studio when he was doing his uh, solo record that was back in 1980, 80, 1988. Yeah. We were recording. I was recording with it was Steve Prince. Project yeah. back then, yeah. And David was you know so um so lovely back then. He was just really polite and and, yeah. and generous with his time. But I met David uh, again recently and, and actually Victoria, my wife, did an interview with yes, him that she we did, yeah. that we published and yeah. and he he is just such an awesome guy. So he and he jumped on the piano at one stage and it's like <laughs> such an excellent musician. Yeah. Just such Crazy. an awesome musician. Yeah. So that would be my probably the most. Uh, well, that's almost Ballarat and international wrapped up in one, isn't well, it? One did, person. I did national, international, and local. You did. Yeah. So I, I think, uh, but no, I think on an on an international level, it would be. I better add David to the list. Sorry, I'll just. It would be Matt that Lang. In. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It would yeah. Be Matt Lang. Yeah. He's all the all the albums, all my favorite albums he produced, like you know the. Foreigner four, I think it is. Uh, um, the Def Leppard, Hysteria, Pyromania. Um, I have so many, so many great ones. Like uh, him, and it would be between him and uh, Trevor Horn. Trevor Horn and Mutt Lang are the two producers that really influenced. Yeah, like Hirschfelder from a musical point of view, uh, and Trevor Horn and uh, and, and Mutt Lang, and then later Max Martin. Yeah, right. Hard to ignore him. Yeah. yeah, all all unique, and you can you know that you almost know their music. I mean, yeah. You say that a lot about a lot of producers, but you, you listen to a, an album and you go, "Oh, I reckon that's, you know, that's Chris Lord Algae or you know, you sort of." Well, Chris Chris actually mixed down Backstreet Boys track. He's, oh, did he? Yeah, 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 great mixer. I remember going into his studio. He's a strange way of doing things, but it works. Well, he yeah he, he would reduce our 40 or 50 ch- channel mix down to 16 channels. Mm. That's his first thing he does. Yep. And everything is hardwired. So he has um, set and forget like 1176 settings and all yep. these kind of URI settings. He's got all the templates. Yeah. Yep. And so nothing, nothing's changed. And when he shows you the track, he's got NS10s in front of him and it's deafening. Yep. Like, um, he's going, what do you think? And he turns it up to like, if, if 11, it yep. feels like 12. Yep. 
and it's deafening loud. I was like, mate, it sounds great, but you're killing me. <laughs> Did you reckon his hearing's going? <laughs> no, it was so loud. I, I literally had to. It was, but it, but his mixing and yeah. his quality was just yeah. insanely good. He's a, he's a great mixer. There's a, many great mixers in the mm. US. Yeah, there's some here too. That's one thing I used to enjoy doing: mixing. I don't love it. I actually love the editing. Oh God, I hate the editing and the noise, the cleaning up. Oh. The, the, I did a bit of forensic forensic audio stuff work for. Wow, you enjoy that? Yeah, oh, it'd be great to it's great to work yeah. with him because that's all the stuff I hate. I, I used to love just the the. I used, to, I used to enjoy the capturing. Yep, and the mixing. Yep. So, all the hard part in between is mm, that we save that. That used to be the painful part because it needed to be so clean. Yeah. Yep. Mastering. Do you do your own? I have done. I always prefer someone else to do it. I find it extremely difficult, and you can't really do it in unless you've got the right room. And I mean, yeah. I couldn't do it here correctly. Yeah, I, I could do it passively, but not. I've done it many times. I mean, if I was just, there's been plenty of times I've sent out my master, um, but. No, I'd always prefer to to trust someone else. I think it's a specialty. Isn't it's it? like a night. It's a second opinion too. Like, That's true. Yeah, I, I always liked a mastering engineer would come back to me and say, "Mix it again. Just add a little bit of bottom end. Save him trying to manipulate it." What's a joke for you? What's the difference between a mix engineer and a mastering engineer? I don't know. About six dB. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I should have seen that coming. Yeah. <laughs> That's it, mate. I, I've got nothing else to ask you. Um, is there any you want to direct people to the website? Yeah, or, so it's yeah. just songtrader.com. You can spell it the way you spell it, or you can spell it the correct way. Either way, it gets you there. But it's s o n g t r a d r dot com. Great. Thanks for your time, mate. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Richard.